The pandemic is likely to take on new forms in the future. The climate emergency is all too obvious. The latest UN report makes for sobering reading. It warns that dire impacts from climate change will arrive sooner than many expect. The co-chair of the working group behind the report said, quote, it's now or never if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 centigrade. Without immediate and deep emissions reductions across all sectors, it will be impossible, unquote. Meanwhile, the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said some governments and businesses were lying in claiming to be on track for 1.5C. He warned some government leaders are saying one thing but doing another. Simply put, they are lying and the results will be catastrophic. Our guest today is Nancy Frazier. She's a philosopher, critical theorist, feminist, and the Henry A. and Louise Loeb Professor of Political and Social Science and Professor of Philosophy at the New School in New York. She's the author of Fortunes of Feminism and Cannibal Capitalism. She spoke in New York in April 2022. We often hear today that COVID-19 has served as a perverse diagnostic, that it lights up all the fault lines in our society, that it reveals inequalities of gender and color, of nation and class. However, I think that we don't hear enough about the social system that generates those fault lines, that underlies them, even though that's the same social system that I'll suggest has brought us the virus in the first place and is still blocking our efforts to deal with it. So my suggestion is that we stop tiptoeing around and cut to the chase. What the pandemic diagnoses actually is the deep-seated dysfunctionality of capitalism. So my thesis is that COVID is a perfect storm of capitalist irrationality and injustice. More than anything in recent memory, it discloses the system's multiple contradictions, ecological contradictions, political contradictions, social and economic contradictions. All of these, I'm going to argue, are baked into a social order that incentivizes a profit-hungry class of owners to devour the essential conditions of their own existence and, what's worse, of ours. It incentivizes them to guzzle care work, to scarf up nature, to eviscerate public power, and to wolf down the wealth of racialized populations, to suck dry the energy and creativity of all working people. Those things that, that I just listed, that I'm, I'm saying capitalism is devouring, those are essential conditions of production and of accumulation, that is of those paradigmatic capitalist economic processes, but also of life more broadly on the planet. And there's the rub. Capitalist society is structured in a way that begs the profit makers to gobble them up 
in order to fatten their share prices while absolving them of any obligation to replenish what they take or to repair what they damage. The effect is not only to leave a trail of wreckage across the globe, but also to destabilize the entire jerry-built edifice of capitalist society. In that little introductory spiel I just recited, there are lots of metaphors about devouring and guzzling and eating up and so on. And you'll be hearing a lot of references to cannibalism and uh, this kind of um, uh, wolfing down uh, stuff uh, throughout my talk. So I want to just say a little word about that term and about the term capitalism, because I'm putting them together, cannibal capitalism. I want to start with cannibalism. The word has several meanings. The most familiar, the most concrete, the one that I'm sure that first occurs to you is the ritual eating of human flesh by a human being. Now, that usage is burdened by a very long racist history. The term was applied by an inverted logic to Black Africans who were on the receiving end of Euro-imperial predation. So I have to confess that I take a certain satisfaction in turning the tables and invoking it here as a descriptor for the capitalist class, a group I want to show that feeds off of everyone else. But the term cannibalism also has a more abstract meaning, which captures a deeper truth about our society. The verb to cannibalize means, and this is a dictionary definition I'm quoting, to deprive one facility or enterprise of an essential element of its functioning for the purpose of creating or sustaining another faculty or enterprise. And that, I think you will see very soon, is a fair approximation of the relation of capitalism's economy to the system's non-economic precincts to the families and communities, to the habitats and ecosystems, to the state capacities and public powers whose substance the capitalist economy consumes in order to engorge itself. Now, there's also a specialized astronomical meaning of cannibalism. A celestial object is said to cannibalize another such object when it incorporates the mass from the latter through gravitational attraction. That, I want to suggest here too, is an apt characterization of the process by which capital draws into its orbit natural and social wealth from peripheral zones of the world system. There is finally the image of the Ouroboros, that's the self-cannibalizing serpent that eats its own tail. I'm sure you've all seen pictures of this. That is a fitting image, I want to suggest, for a system that is wired to devour the social, political, and natural bases of its own existence, which, as I said before, are also the bases of our existence. 
So all told, I'm suggesting the cannibalism metaphor offers several promising avenues for an analysis of capitalist society. It invites us to see that society as an institutionalized feeding frenzy in which the main course is us. Now, the word capitalism, too, cries out for characters for clarification. That word is commonly used to name an economic system, a system based on private property and market exchange, on wage labor and production for profit. But that definition is too narrow. It obscures rather than discloses the system's true nature. Capitalism, I'm going to be arguing here, better designates something larger, a societal order that empowers a profit-driven economy to prey on the extra economic supports it needs in order to function, to prey upon wealth expropriated from nature and from subject peoples, on multiple forms of care work, which are chronically undervalued when not wholly devalorized in this system, to prey on public goods and public powers, which capital both requires and tries to weaken, to prey on the energy and creativity of working people. These are forms of wealth which do not appear on corporate balance sheets, but they are absolutely essential preconditions for the profits and other monetary gains that do appear on those balance sheets. They are vital underpinnings of accumulation and constitutive components of the capitalist order. In this talk, therefore, I will be using the term capitalism to refer not to a type of economy, but to a type of society, one that authorizes an officially designated economy, which is wired to pile up monetized value for investors and owners, to devour the non-economized wealth on which their gains depend. Serving up that wealth on a platter to the corporate classes, this society invites them to make a meal of our creative capacities and of the earth that sustains us with, as I said before, no obligation to replenish what they consume or to repair what they damage. Now, that's a recipe for trouble. Like the Ouroboros that eats its own tail, it's a veritable dynamo of self-destabilization. It periodically precipitates crisis. COVID-19, the pandemic, is, I think, a textbook demonstration of that proposition. The pandemic is a switch point where all of capitalism's contradictions converge, where the cannibalization of nature, of care work and political capacity, of peripheralized populations and working classes all merge together in a lethal binge. To see why, I want to revisit the concept of capitalism in a little more detail than I just outlined. As I said, our received understandings focus too single-mindedly on the system's official economy. They identify the core injustice of capitalist society 
with the exploitation of free waged workers at the point of commodity production. And they designate the systems defining irrationality as its tendency to precipitate economic crises. Now, those identifications are not so much wrong as incomplete. Capitalist societies do indeed generate class exploitation and economic crises as a function of their structural dynamics. But they also give rise to additional injustices and irrationalities, which are equally structural and serious, but would fail to appear on the radar of received understandings. These extra economic defects of capitalist societies, I shall call them, are deeply implicated in the present COVID crisis. If we hope to interpret that crisis correctly and to figure out how to overcome it, we need to develop a new expanded conception of capitalism that foregrounds not just the system's economy, but the relation of its economy to the latter's non-economic conditions of possibility. So now I want to mention four such non-economic conditions for the possibility of a capitalist economy. The first is a sizable fund of unwaged labor devoted to what many feminist theorists call social reproduction. This labor includes housework, the birthing and rearing of children, the care of adults, including wage workers, the elderly and the unemployed, all aimed at the making and sustaining of human beings. These activities of people-making, as we might call them, constitute an indispensable precondition for profit-making. Without them, there could be no workers, no labor power, no necessary or surplus labor time, no exploitation, no surplus value, no accumulation of capital, no profit. And yet, Capital accords this labor, these activities of social reproduction, no value. It's unconcerned to replenish them. It seeks to avoid paying for them insofar as it can. So that's the first non-economic precondition for a capitalist economy. A second such precondition is a large fund of wealth expropriated from subjugated peoples especially from racialized peoples. This wealth includes dependent, unfree, and unwaged or underwaged labor, but also expropriated land, looted mineral and energy deposits, human bodies and bodily organs, children and reproductive capacities, all of which have been seized and funneled as inputs into capitalist production, inputs for which capital pays little or nothing. Expropriated wealth was an indispensable source of capital stockpiling at the start of of the capitalism's history, as Marx maintained. But it did not cease with the system's maturation, so to speak. On the contrary, the capitalist economy relies even now on a continuing stream of free or cheap inputs as a major source of accumulation alongside and interconnected with the more familiar category of exploitation. 
Absent such expropriation of subject peoples, the exploitation of so-called free workers would not be profitable. And yet, capital disavows its reliance on such wealth and refuses to pay for its replenishment. Now, I've already hinted at this, but here's a third non-economic precondition for a capitalist economy, namely a large fund of free gifts or cheap inputs from non-human nature. These supply the indispensable material substratum of capitalist production, the raw materials that labor transforms, the energy that powers machines, the foodstuffs that power bodies, and all the general environmental conditions like arable land, breathable air, potable water, a habitable climate, and the carbon-carrying capacities of the Earth's atmosphere. If we didn't have these natural inputs and general ecological background conditions, there could be no economic producers or social reproducers, no wealth to expropriate or free labor to exploit, no capital and no capitalists. Yet here too, same logic. Capital treats nature as a source of free or very cheap gifts to which it helps itself but fails to replenish or repair. Now, there's a fourth and final non-economic precondition for a capitalist economy that I want to mention, and that is a large fund of public goods supplied by states and other public powers. These include legal orders that guarantee property rights, contracts, and free exchange, repressive forces that ensure order, put down rebellions, manage dissent, and enable expropriation both within and beyond state territory. Also, a money supply that stores value and enables transactions across broad swaths of time and space. Also, transport and communications infrastructure and a variety of mechanisms for managing system crises. In the absence of these public goods, there could be no social order, no trust, no exchange, hence no sustained accumulation. Yet here, too, we see the same dynamic. Capital tends to resent public power, even as it desperately needs it, and seeks to weaken it, evading its regulations and the taxes that are necessary to sustain it. Each of these four conditions represents an indispensable presupposition of a capitalist economy. Each harbors social relations, social activities, and forms of social wealth that together form the sine qua non for accumulation. Behind capitalism's official institutions, wage, labor, production, exchange, finance, and so on, stand their necessary supports and enabling conditions families, communities, nature, territorial states, political organizations, and civil society, and not least of all, massive amounts and multiple forms of unwaged and expropriated labor. Fundamentally integral to capitalist society, these things too are constitutive elements of it. Capitalism then is no mere economy but something larger. 
It's an institutionalized social order that also includes the non-economized zones on which the economy relies. Well, what I've just sketched is what we can call an expanded view of capitalism. And I want to suggest that it has a decisive advantage over the more familiar received conceptions of capitalism as simply an economy. Unlike those received conceptions, this one allows us to scrutinize something absolutely crucial, namely the relation established in a capitalist society between the system's economy and its background conditions. These relations I am suggesting are contradictory and perverse. Economic actors, as we call them, whom the system wires to accumulate capital, have every incentive to drain wealth from the society's non-economic zones while offloading the costs onto others. By definition, then, capitalism is a cannibal, primed to guzzle its own conditions of possibility. Necessarily, too, it generates multiple injustices and irrationalities beyond the economic ones. Deeply implicated in the present COVID crisis, but invisible to received understandings, these Non-economic injustices and irrationalities appear with blazing clarity when we assume the expanded view of capitalism that I've just outlined. Consider, first of all, that this expanded conception gives us access to an expanded catalog of capitalist injustices above and beyond the received focus on class exploitation. Whereas that injustice resides within the system's economy, so to speak, others are grounded instead in the divisions between the capitalist economy and its non-economic conditions of possibility. The division between economic production, where labor is remunerated in cash wages, and social reproduction, where it is often unwaged and always underwaged, where it is sentimentalized and recompensed in love. That's a, a perfect example. Historically, gender entrenches a fundamental gender asymmetry at the heart of capitalist societies and grounds the subordination of women, gender binarism, and heteronormativity. Similarly, capitalist societies institute a structural division between those it calls free workers who can exchange their labor power for the cost of their reproduction and dependent others whose persons and assets can simply be seized. The latter group provides capital with a stream of free or cheap inputs that swell the tide of profit. Now, this is a status division. And it's a division that is fundamental to capitalist society. It coincides roughly but unmistakably with the global color line and undergirds a range of structural injustices, including racial oppression, imperialism, old and new, indigenous dispossession, and in extreme cases, genocide. 
Then two, capitalist societies institute a sharp division between human beings and non-human nature, which cease to belong to the same ontological universe. Non-human nature is reduced to a tap and a sink, a tap from which we capital takes the resources it wants and a sink or garbage pan where it dumps its waste. Thus, non-human nature is open to brute extractivism and instrumentalization. Now, if this is not properly called an injustice against nature or against non-human animals, it's at the very least an injustice against existing and future generations of human beings who are left with an increasingly uninhabitable planet. Finally, capitalism institutes a structural division between the economic and the political. On one side stands the private power of capital to organize production using only the lash of hunger and need. On the other side, we find the public power of the state, which monopolizes legitimate violence and represents law. Now, the effect of this division between the political and the economic is to truncate the scope of the political, expelling from the public agenda a range of life and death questions, such as, as we'll see soon, who will have access to the COVID vaccine and who won't. These matters get devolved to capital. They're not treated as political questions, but their resolution depends on economic relations. Capitalist societies offer only a poor and shrunken facsimile of democracy. They subject supposedly self-governing citizens to capital's arbitrary rule. And so they are veritable cauldrons of political injustice. But that's not all. This expanded view also enlarges our view of what counts as capitalist crisis, above and beyond irrationalities internal to its economy. We can now see, for example, that capitalism harbors a structural tendency to crises of social reproduction. Capital tries to disavow the unwaged care work on which it depends. And so it periodically puts enormous pressure on the chief providers of that work, families, communities, and above all women. The current financialized form of capitalist society is generating just such a crisis today because it demands both retrenchment of public provision of social services and vastly increased hours of wage work per household, including from women. Now, the expanded view also discloses an inherent tendency in capitalism to ecological crisis because capital works overtime to avoid paying anything close to the true replacement costs of the inputs it takes from non-human nature. Depleting the soil and befouling the seas, this system floods carbon sinks and overwhelms the carbon-carrying capacities of the planet. Helping itself to all of these things while disavowing their repair and replacement costs, the system periodically destabilizes the metabolic interaction between the human and non-human components of nature. And I don't need to belabor here how pressing and acute 
is our current ecological crisis. You're listening to Nancy Frazier on Capitalism, COVID, and the Climate Crisis. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Capitalism's tendency to ecological and social reproductive crisis are inseparable from its constitutive reliance on expropriated wealth from racialized peoples. Again, its reliance on stolen lands, coerced labor, its dependence on racialized zones as dumping grounds for toxic waste and as suppliers of underpaid care work, increasingly in global care chains. The result is an entwining of economic, ecological, and social crisis with imperialism and racial ethnic antagonism. Finally, the enlarged view of capitalism discloses a deep-seated tendency to political crisis. Here, too, capital tries to have it both ways, living off public goods for which it tries not to pay. It is primed to evade taxes and to weaken state regulatory capacities. So it tends to hollow out the very public powers on which it depends. The current financialized form of capitalism takes this game to a whole new level. Mega corporations outgun territorially tethered public powers, while global finance disciplines states making a mockery of elections and preventing our rulers from addressing popular claims, even if they wanted to, which admittedly most do not. The result is a major crisis of governance, which is now joined to a crisis of hegemony. Masses of people across the globe have defected from established political parties and common sense. In general, then, the expanded view discloses that capitalism harbors multiple crisis tendencies above and beyond the economic. Now, all of this, I want to suggest, serves to clarify our present conjuncture. The COVID pandemic, as I noted before, is a switch point where all of capitalism's injustices and irrationalities converge where the cannibalization of nature, care work, and political capacity of peripheralized populations and working classes merge, as I said, in a lethal binge. Now I want to take a closer look at this conjuncture through the lens of the expanded view of capitalism. And I want to begin with nature, which is the site of the system's ecological contradiction. It was none other than capital's cannibalization of nature, that vital vital support of its own existence and of ours, that exposed humans to SARS-CoV-2 in the first place. Long harbored by bats in remote caves, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 made the zoonotic leap to us in 2019 by way of some bridging species 
possibly pangolins, although that is not yet definitively established. But what brought the bats into contact with that intermediary and what brought the latter into contact with us was, you guessed it, the combined effect of global warming on the one hand and tropical deforestation on the other. Both of those processes are the progeny of capital, its hunger for profit. Together, global warming, tropical deforestation eviscerated the habitats of innumerable species, triggering mass migrations, creating new proximities among previously distanced and now distressed organisms, and promoting novel transfers of pathogens among them. Now, that dynamic, even before COVID, had already precipitated a string of viral epidemics, each passed from bats to humans via some amplifying host, AIDS via chimpanzee, Nipah via pigs, the original SARS via civets, MERS via camels, and now COVID-19, possibly, as I said, via pangolins. The point is that more of these epidemics, pandemics are sure to come because they are the non-accidental byproducts of a social order that puts nature at the mercy of capital. Incentivized to appropriate biophysical wealth as quickly and cheaply as possible with no responsibility for repair or replenishment, those who are dedicated to amassing profit decimate rainforests and bombard the atmosphere with greenhouse gases. They are hellbent on accumulation in every era but have been massively empowered to do that by neoliberalization. And so for non-accidental reasons, they let loose an escalating cascade of lethal plagues. Now, COVID's effects on humans would be horrific under any conditions, but they have been incalculably worsened by another strand of the present crisis, rooted in another structural contradiction of capitalist society, one that has also been sharpened to a fever pitch in the neoliberal era. It is, after all, not just nature that capital has cannibalized in this period, but also public power. That, too, I suggested, is an essential ingredient of its diet, avidly consumed in every phase of the system's development, but devoured with special ferocity over the last 40 years. And that's the catch. The political capacities that financialized capital has gorged on are precisely those we could have used to mitigate the pandemic. But no such luck. With some exceptions, notably Cuba, they drew down stockpiles of life-saving equipment PPE, ventilators, syringes, medicines, test kits. They gutted diagnostic capacities for testing, tracing, modeling, sequencing. They shrank coordination and treatment capacities, public ho hospitals, ICU units, ability to organize vaccine production, storage and distribution, etc. Having eviscerated the public health infrastructure, moreover, our rulers devolved vital healthcare functions to profit 
driven providers and insurers, pharmaceuticals, and manufacturers. These firms, which are constitutionally uninterested in and unconstrained by the public interest, now control the lion's share of the world's health-related resources. They control the labor forces and raw materials, the machinery and production facilities, the supply chains and intellectual property, the research institutions and personnel, all those things which together determine our fates, individual and collective. Committed to preserving their profit streams, these firms form a private force majeure that blocks concerted public action on behalf of humanity. The effects are tragic, but it must be said unsurprising. A social system that subjects matters of life and death to the so-called law of value was structurally primed from the get-go to abandon untold millions to COVID-19. But that is not all. The collapse of already weak public systems converged with another structural contradiction of capitalist society, one centered on social reproduction. Always a staple of capital's consumption, care work has been voraciously gobbled up by it in recent years. The same regime that divested from public health care infrastructure also broke unions and drove down wages, compelling increased hours of paid work per household, including from primary caregivers. In other words, neoliberalism offloaded care work onto families and communities at just the moment when it had commandeered the social energies that we need to perform it. The effect was to turn capitalism's inherent tendency to destabilize social reproduction into an acute care crunch. COVID's advent has intensified this strand of crisis too. Under lockdown, childcare and schooling shifted into people's homes, leaving parents to take on that burden on top of others in confined domestic spaces that were totally ill-suited to those purposes. Many employed women ended up quitting their jobs to care for kids and other relatives, while many others were laid off by employers. Both those groups face major losses in position and pay if and when they rejoin the workforce. A third group, privileged to keep their jobs and work remotely from home while also performing care work, including for housebound kids, had to take multitasking to new heights of craziness. A fourth group, which includes both women and men, bore the honorific title essential workers, but are paid a pittance and treated as disposable. They were required to brave the threat of infection daily, along with the fear of bringing it home, in order to produce and distribute the stuff that enabled others to shelter in place. In each of these cases, the work of social reproduction now swollen by the pandemic still falls largely to women, as it has in every phase of capitalism's history. But which women end up in which category depends on color and class. So let's now look at them. 
a built-in feature of capitalist society, structural racism infuses every aspect of the current crisis. At the global level, it colors the ecological strand. As capital quenches its thirst for cheap nature, largely by seizing land, energy, and minimal, mineral wealth from racialized populations who've been deprived of political protection and actionable rights. Having been subjected variously to conquest, enslavement, genocide, and dispossession, those populations now bear an undue share of the global environmental load disproportionately vulnerable to toxic dumping, to so-called natural disasters, to multiple lethal impacts of global warming, they now find themselves last in line for vaccination. No wonder then that their members were disproportionately infected and killed by COVID. The reasons were not mysterious, poverty and inferior healthcare, pre-existing medical conditions linked to stress, poor nutrition and exposure to toxins, overrepresentation in frontline jobs that could not be performed remotely, lack of resources that would permit them to refuse unsafe work, lack of labor rights that would permit them to win protections, inferior housing and living arrangements that don't allow for social distancing and that facilitate transmission and again, diminished access to the vaccine. Together, these conditions have expanded the meaning of the slogan, Black Lives Matter, synergizing with its original reference to police violence and helping to fuel ongoing protests. Color, moreover, is deeply entwined with class in the capitalist world system generally and in the present period particularly. In fact, the two are quite difficult to separate as the category essential worker shows. If we leave aside medical professionals, that designation covers migrant farm workers, immigrant meatpacking and slaughterhouse workers, Amazon warehouse pickers, UPS drivers, nursing home aides, hospital cleaners, supermarket stockers and cashiers, those who deliver groceries and take out meals especially dangerous in COVID times. These jobs are overwhelmingly low-paid, non-unionized, and precarious. They don't carry benefits or labor protections. They are subject to intrusive supervision and relentless speed-up. Although others hold some of them too, these jobs are disproportionately filled by women and people of color. Taken together, these jobs and those who perform them represent the face of the working class in financialized capitalism. No longer epitomized by the figure of the white male miner, factory operative, or construction worker, that class now consists of caregivers and low-wage service workers, paid less than the costs of its reproduction when paid at all, it is expropriated as well as exploited. COVID has exposed that dirty secret as well. By juxtaposing the essential character of that class's work to capital's systematic undervaluation of it, the pandemic testifies to yet another major contradiction of capitalist society. That is, the inability of markets in labor power to accurately 
reckon the real worth of work. So that's why I say that COVID is a perfect storm of capitalist irrationality and injustice. By ratcheting up the system's inherent defects to the breaking point, it has shined a piercing beam on all the structural contradictions of our society. Dragging them out from the shadows and into the daylight, the pandemic reveals capital's inherent drive to cannibalize nature up to the very brink of planetary conflagration, to divert our capacities away from the truly essential work of social reproduction, to eviscerate public power to the point where it cannot solve the problems the system generates, to feed off the ever-decreasing wealth and health of racialized people, to not only exploit, but also expropriate the working class. I think, therefore, that we could not ask for a better lesson in social theory. Thank you very much for your attention. The question that I have for you is really about gender. As you talked about the four uh, non-economic, right, sort of preconditions and thinking about that. And as you were talking, of course, I'm sure many of us were thinking about the the labor, right, that that means for women, but also for girls. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about capitalism and gender specifically? I know you touched on it, right? And you touched on the feminist principles, but but dig a little deeper there for us, particularly because as you talk about the hegemonic nature, right, of capitalism and and that reproductive nature, right, which is predatory, it's predatory on... uh, holding certain conditions to be true. And so anyway, and I think, and for women and girls, because I think that's really important as we think about the evolution of gender. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm so glad you're bringing girls into it because it's uh, often uh, neglected. That's a very important insight that you're bringing. So um, I would say that one of the things that is specific to capitalism and makes capitalism capitalism is that it created a divided world. Many pre-capitalist societies, you know, they didn't have a sharp distinction between the, the place where you worked and the place where, where you lived with your family. Um, there was a social universe. There may have been a gender division of labor where women tended to do one thing and, and, and men another, but all of uh, women's work was visible and acknowledged, and it was part of the same social universe. Capitalism introduces a very intense division between quote-unquote work and and family, uh, productive labor and what feminists now call social reproductive labor. With productive labor, you go out to the factory or to the mine or to the office, you, you put in uh, whatever your hours are, and, and then you come back and you experience uh, home uh, as the place of relaxation and rest where you can really be yourself. You're away from the alienation, the space of love, of intimacy, except it's also a space of work. But now the work is obscured. It's become invisible. It's not socially recognized. Now, I think everybody who's listening here knows quite a bit about care work and its importance. 
But that's thanks to the hard work of generations of feminists and other activists who have insisted that we take this into account. We know it in our heads that you can't have production without reproduction, that you know, if, if home is going to be a relaxing place for some, it's because for others are working to make it so. And that will often include uh, girls. I mean, I, I'd love to see empirical research on this. I mean, it used to be obvious that um, when dinner ended, the girls went with their mothers into the kitchen to do the dishes and the, the boys went outside or, you know, whatever to play or, or, or uh, to hang out with their dads or something. Uh, I um, hope that's not as true today, but I really don't know. And I'd love to see um, how much those patterns are changing if they are changing. Um, and I mean, I'm only talking now about the sort of, you know, wealthy uh, North Atlantic parts of the world in in poor countries where child labor for both sexes is rampant. Um, and, and uh, that's a whole nother matter. And, and then we even still have parts of the world where arranged marriage for very young girls is uh, just, uh, you know, the way things are done. And it's very hard, especially in isolated rural areas for people to resist for girls to resist, or even for their parents to resist if they don't think it's a good idea. So I think that this, too, importantly relates to capitalism, but we also have to factor in the issues of class and race, because it's not true that all women have just been housewives, right? There's a very long history of paid reproductive labor. Servants in the homes of uh, upper class uh, women, this uh, is an old, old story, um, enslaved women in the big house or in their own uh, slave quarters, uh, taking care of all the reproductive work there. And then paid reproductive labor, again, maids, nannies, right? Um, and so on and so forth for a period in private homes. And now increasingly the same work of cleaning and, and cooking and so on in offices, in nursing homes, in all of these institutional spaces, some of which hotels, some of which are for profit and others of which are, are public in the case of public hospitals, for example. So we've got a complicated situation with reproductive labor. Now, some of it goes on in the home. Some of it goes on paid in people's homes. Some of it goes on, on in institutions and, and are, is waged, but very underpaid, extremely underpaid. So I think there's a whole question about how girls are being socialized. What are their, the expectations that are, that are being cultivated for them? And that's complicated because it, in a country like this one, you've got a, a pop culture, uh, mass culture, that often presents images of, of young women as sexually autonomous and powerful and, and so on. And yet um, they're also very, very sexualized and objectified. This is already a bit of a contradiction. 
I'd like to know uh, what kind of research we have, if any, about the relative <laughs> the relative uh, frequency in which girls in hookup culture have orgasms versus boys. Right. I mean, there are all kinds of things going on here that have the appearance of liberation. And yet one suspects of some real asymmetries. Anyway, there, there are so many aspects of this question. I'll, I'll just have to leave it at that. You were just listening to Nancy Frazier on capitalism, COVID and the climate crisis. She spoke in New York in April 2022. Nancy Frazier teaches at the New School in New York. She's the author of Fortunes of Feminism and Cannibal Capitalism. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Henry Giroux, Bill McKibben, Vandana Shiva, Roger Hallam, Yanis Varoufakis, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, Michael Eric Dyson, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Nancy Frazier on Capitalism, COVID, and the Climate Crisis, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Consequences of Capitalism, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Loudon Wainwright III. Hard day on the planet. One, a two, a one, two. dollar went down and the president's sick Who's in charge now? I don't know, take your pick A new disease every day and the old ones are coming back Things are looking kind of gray, like they're gonna get black Don't turn on the TV, don't show me the paper Don't wanna know he got kidnapped or why they all raped him I wanna go on vacation till the pressure lets up they keep hijacking airplanes and blowing them up It's been a hard day on the planet How much is it all worth? It's getting harder to understand it Things are tough all over on Earth It's hot in December, cold in July when it rains, it pours out of a poisonous sky. In California, the body counts keep getting higher. It's evil out there, man. That state is always on fire. Everyone has a system, but they can't seem to win. Even Bob Geldorf looks alarmingly thin. I've got to get on that shuttle, get me out of this place. 
But there's gonna be warfare up there in outer space It's been a hard day on the planet How much is it all worth? It's getting harder to understand it Things are tough all over on Earth Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Welcome to CJSW 90.9 FM, where the sun never sets and the fun never stops. Broadcasting in Calgary, located on Treaty 7 land and Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Here you will find relaxation and your heart's delight. Listen away, for we are your ray of Your whole life, life. 